Open up to the book of Judges, chapter 1. And we're going to continue this week on our journey through the Scripture, understanding the story, the story of our lives. Now, last week, if you remember, this is kind of like when you watch a television show and they say, previously on, you know, so previously on story. If you remember, we talked about God created all that we see, all that we know God created. He created this universe, and even scientists have come to the conclusion that this universe seems to have been created, prepared for us. So God created the universe, and then He created us as the ultimate pinnacle of His creation, to be in a relationship with Him, really to spread His fame throughout the earth. And then the enemy comes along and tempts, and in the midst of that temptation, man rebels. We call the beginning of our story, once upon a time in a land far, far away. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is as we build our story, our titles and points will begin to explain the entire story. So at the end of it, you can write them down and see. And so, once upon a time in a land far, far away, today we come to the place where promises were made and promises were broken. Let me tell you that today is a sermon that was difficult for me to get together. And this is the reason. Most of you that know me know that it doesn't take much for me to be able to talk a lot, right? You know, amen? I got a couple of amens. That's good. We're getting started early, maybe not on what I want, but we're there. And last week, we covered a lot of Scripture for me. In last week's sermon, in a 30-minute period of time, we covered three chapters of the Bible. That's a lot. On Wednesday night, we've been in the book of Acts since I've been here, which is almost two years now. All right? Ben York came back to Wednesday night. He's been working on, uh, he's been working with the youth and some other things, and he came back to Wednesday night after about eight months. He said, looks like nothing's changed. We're still in the book of Acts. So we've been there. I, I do that. Well, today, we're only going to cover the rest of the Old Testament. All right? So we covered three chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Today, we're going from Genesis 4 to Malachi. All right? So I hope your lunch plans can be delayed. I hope you've got a, a timer that will cut off the roast when it's supposed to be cut off because we're going to be, well, we're not going to be here that long. Uh, but it's been tough because you're consolidating the entire Old Testament into a sermon. Well, obviously, I can't cover it all. Amen? Uh, if you want me to, we will. Do you, I can't cover it all. Amen? And so we're going to look at the major principles and it's come down to these two phrases to me. Promises were made and promises were broken. Now what you see happens is immediately after where we left off last week, sin just invades the earth. I mean, we talked about Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where sin comes into the world, where sin begins. And we see in Genesis chapter 4 that sin has spread to the point that murder occurs between brothers on the earth. So quickly, sin did not just kind of gradually come in, but it flooded in. In fact, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, you've got these strange descriptions of Nephilim and the daughters of men and all these strange things. And it says in chapter 6 of Genesis that the earth had become so wicked that God decided to wipe it out. I just want to make a quick comment there. I don't know how wicked the earth was. But if it was wicked enough for God to wipe it out, after how wicked I can see our earth can be, then it had to be wicked. Right? 
And so in the midst of that, we see God really wiping the slate clean, but we also see what will be a recurrent motif throughout, that God always chooses a remnant. In this case, Noah and his family. And they get on the big houseboat, right? It takes a little while to build that, but they build it. They get on the houseboat. The rains come. It floods everywhere. Noah and his family, they, they, because of what God has done for them, they get off the boat, and they have descendants, and they live completely honoring God, right? No. I mean, Noah gets off the boat, and before he hardly gets off the boat, trouble's starting. By the time we get just a few chapters later, the people are so convinced that they're as good as God that they're going to build a tower to get to the Lord. Now, I want you to imagine what we know now about the universe, all right? What we know about the universe and that the universe cannot house God. I want you to think about how ridiculous it is that people thought we could build a tower to get to God. But they begin to build the tower, and God looks at it, not because God is intimidated or worried about his power. He scatters the people for their own good. And in Genesis chapter 12, we have the beginning of these promises of God taking a people for himself. Now, we're going to get to Judges in just a minute, but I want you to see what's happening before we get there. And in Genesis chapter 12, you have this man who's an elderly, fatherless man living in the earth, and God says, you're my man. Get your family, get going, and get out of there. So they travel into a land that they don't know where they're going. They get there. His family's with them. And in the midst of that, God says, by the way, just so you know, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Covenant becomes a major word in the Old Testament. becomes a major word in the New Testament. A covenant is really an agreement, but it's much more than that. Today, we've replaced the word covenant with contract. And contract is based upon rules and regulations. Covenant is based upon the people that are in them. When I go to the car dealership, and I sign papers, I sign papers that are rules and regulations. I will follow this, this, and this. But I have no personal relationship most of the time with the guy across the table from me. You may know the guy. Some of you may have. Well, I do. He's my brother-in-law or whatever. But for the most part, people don't have a relationship. Covenant is between people, and it's based on the character of the people. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham, and God says, I'm going to make you more prolific than you can imagine. Your people will be like the sands on the beach. You won't be able to count them. Sands on the earth can't count them. And in the midst of that, I'm going to bless all people through you. Now, what is important to understand is, and gets lost sometimes in discussing the Old Testament, is that God did not choose Israel or Abraham or Moses or the people because he didn't like the other people. What God chose them for was to be part of spreading his fame, his renown, with his people across all the earth. Now, they didn't always get that. Just like churches don't always get that we're not here for ourselves. But God chooses Abram. They go, and you know the story of, of Abram who becomes Abraham, the father of one to the father of many. And as he goes through his life that God chooses him, he says, you're going to have a child, and Abraham's a little old. And I don't use that term lightly. I mean, he's in his 90s, all right? And God says, you're going to have a child, and his wife, when she hears that news, just laughs, right? And so... Abraham has a child. 
God begins to use him. There's the moment on Mount Moriah where he almost sacrifices his son as God has called him to do. But then he, in his obedience, God sees it and relents. And the story of a nation begins. The story goes all the way down through Joseph who gets called up into some things and ends up in Egypt. And after many, many years and a couple of change of hands in power, a king or Pharaoh comes to power that doesn't remember Joseph or his family. And he puts the Israelites in slavery. And suddenly this nation that God has called upon for himself begins to understand that they are in slavery and have no hope out. And they begin to cry out for a deliverer. God provides that deliverer in the man of Moses. Moses takes the people, leads them out takes them across the Red Sea, and they get across the Red Sea, and God's people, so thankful for what God has done, immediately begin to obey Him and do so for the rest of time. No, that's not what happens. They get across the Red Sea. Actually, before they get across the Red Sea, they get there and they start complaining. I mentioned a verse last week at the end of the service talking about announcements, about standing at the Red Sea. Before they even get across the Red Sea, they start saying, Why in the world, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Just take us back. We want to go back to slavery. So then they get across the Red Sea. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law of the Lord. And the people are so frustrated that Moses didn't back down. They say, you know what? Maybe it wasn't God that brought us across. It was a golden cow. So they throw their gold into a pile. The cow, it says, Aaron, this is always my favorite explanation. Moses comes down from the mountain. Aaron, what happened? We threw our gold in and the cow jumped out. And over and over again we see this cycle. Now, the reason I'm taking you to the book of Judges is because no book in the Old Testament, I think, better depicts this cycle than the book of Judges. And what we see in the midst of all of this is that God is going to make promises to His people, and His people are going to make promises back, and God keeps His promises, and the people don't. Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Boycom and said. Now, realize that the angel of the Lord means the messenger of the Lord. We talked last week that there are a lot of people that think in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord appears, that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ, so it is the Lord himself. That question is one that doesn't matter necessarily for the discussion we have today. What matters here is that this is an official message from the Lord. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The first thing that we see this morning, when you look at the Old Testament and you realize the story where it's going, is that promises were made. God made a promise to his people. You know what is amazing to me when I look throughout the Old Testament is that these promises that God made were made over and over and over again to a people that were completely unfaithful. The first real promise we have in Scripture is what we talked about last week, or the first promise after the fall comes immediately when God tells the serpent, and God is talking about mankind and says, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It was a promise that I'm bringing redemption. We have another promise when Noah, remember, comes out of the boat. God has just had the flood, and what does he do? Puts a rainbow in the sky and he says this rainbow when you see it is to remind you that i will never 
destroy the earth in this way again. We see grace there. What he's saying is not that judgment won't come, but that what has happened here, I'm not doing again. And I want you to know that. How many of you have seen a rainbow in the last three or four months? So does God make that promise clear to us on a regular basis? I'm going to tell you, when we were in Brazil, I don't know why, but there were just beautiful rainbows almost every day. I mean, we would be driving down the road, and most of the time when I've been in Brazil, it hadn't rained that much. It rained more than usual, and it usually takes rain to make a rainbow or moisture, right? That's the way God established it. But just absolutely beautiful rainbows. And it's one of the few symbols in my life that when I see one, I still remember what it's meant to be there for. And so it was a promise from God. Now, Noah and his descendants didn't follow that. And you get to Moses, and you remember that Moses is coming to deliver the people. And God says, I promise you, I'm going to make a nation. I'm going to take them out of there. I'm going to deliver them from bondage. And they do the plagues, the ten plagues, that keep escalating in force. And we get to the last plague, the plague of the Passover. And he says to him, listen, this is my promise to you. If you will take the lamb and you will kill the lamb and you will put the blood on over your door, I will pass over you on this judgment tonight. Now, I know for us, sometimes we read that, it seems a little strange. And for people that aren't familiar with biblical text at all, it would seem strange to kill a lamb and put the blood. But we know that we'll talk about next week about the foreshadowing that the story has of the coming lamb of God. But you see, the promise God made to the people was, I will take you and deliver you. He delivers them. He says, I'm going to give you some things. And there are certain things that God gave the people so that they would have help in fulfilling their part of the covenant. He gave them the law. Remember Moses went up on the mountain? And he gets up on the mountain and he listens for the law of the Lord and they're given to him most famously in the Ten Commandments, but it was more than the Ten Commandments. It was a lot of what the law was about. And he gives them this law that they are to follow. But he doesn't just give them the law. He then tells them, I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to put you in a land that you can live in. And after you're in the land and you have this law, the most important thing I'm going to give you is my presence. From the time the Israelites left Egypt, God gave them His presence. Remember when they were traveling and God showed Himself in fire and a cloud. And then they get to the other side and Moses is talking and they get the law of what they're supposed to do. And part of that is they're supposed to build a tabernacle, a place of dwelling for the Lord. And what they have then is a traveling tabernacle because he has not yet given them the land. But after they get to the land and through many judges and prophets and kings, they get to the point where Solomon finally builds a temple for the Lord. Now what's important is not those buildings or that fire or that cloud. What is important is God gave them himself. I was reading recently a a passage about How do we have the power to live in our daily lives? How do we create or understand the power to live through things? And it said what we need to understand is sometimes we pray to the Lord like he's our local pharmacist asking him to dispense power to us. Hey, God, I just need a little bit more strength today. Lord, I need a little bit more patience today. And it's almost like we're going up to the pharmacist counter each morning and saying, God, I'm looking at my day, and today I'm expecting impatience and I'm expecting weakness, so could you fill these prescriptions to give me this? 
And this person said, God is not a pharmacist filling out prescriptions. He instead gave us himself. And what God does for the people of Israel, and what we see in the first five books of the Bible, is that God says, here's how you ought to live. And this is the God, the one and only God. It's interesting that the book of Deuteronomy over and over again talks about God who is one, the only one. It talks about a God that is sovereign, that he didn't lose control. One of the important things to understand when we're talking about the big story is that in Genesis chapter 3, God was not caught off guard. God's power did not slip. He didn't have to recreate things. This was always in his mind what would happen. He is sovereign in control. And so he gives them all of this stuff. He gives them the law and descendants and land and presence. And all he asks from them is obedience. Now, not obedience for obedience sake, but obedience that they might be the people that God will spread his fame through. You ever wonder why he chose them? You ever wonder why he chose Abraham? Why he chose Israel? Were they the biggest country around? Were they faithful to him? No. You know, you read the Bible in the Old Testament, especially sometimes you just say, God, just why don't you move on to somebody else? I mean, even in, in the book of Deuteronomy, when he's about to give them the law, he says about them that they are faithless people who are stiff-necked. Now, I know that right now if you call somebody stiff-necked, that's not a big insult, all right? Those people go, stiff neck? What does that even mean? But it gives a pretty good picture, doesn't it? Anybody ever met somebody stiff neck? Don't point, just raise, all right? You ever met somebody stiff neck? Just sitting in their ways, not going to budge, sitting there, looking around? Kind of people that make you feel intimidated to be in their presence? And they just seem, well, stiff. I've known a few. And what God says is these people are stiff-necked and they're people that don't follow Him and yet He picks them. You know why? He tells us in Deuteronomy and other places, many places, He picks them just simply because He loved them. When He says to them, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He's saying, I chose you just because I love you. Now, here's the truth. He also chose them because he loved the nations. And his intention and the intention of the story always was that his people would show his love to the nations. And his purpose today, which we will get to in a couple of weeks, is still that it is his people that are show his love to the nations. And so when God is saying all this stuff, He's saying, listen, this is what I've given you. This is who I am. Let me ask you a question. Has God ever broken His covenant with us? No. And He never will. And so God says, these are my promises to you. Now He goes on. He says, I said I'll never break my covenant with you. This is all I ask. 
You not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you break down their altars. Remember when Joshua was going into the land, he said, listen, when you go in, I want you to destroy everything, break down the altars. I want you complete annihilation. Now we say, why in the world would he want to do that? It was because God knew what would happen if some of that rotten influence was still there when the Israelites moved in. And so the people from Joshua's day, even though they conquest, they they conquer the land, the conquest happens, they get there, but they don't destroy everything. And so we see this cycle that God gives them everything they need to obey. God gives them himself. He gives them his love. He gives them his law. And yet they break their promise. Verse 2 continues. You shall not make a covenant, but you shall break down the altars. It says this. Yet you have disobeyed me. You have disobeyed me. I read a story this week of a king who had his brother attempt to assassinate him. It's a fictional tale. And the punishment that the king doled out was that his brother had to be locked up. And they built this cell for his brother, and outside the cell was this beautiful view of the ocean and the outside world. And it was a strange kind of thing because what they set up and they established was that this brother could escape anytime he wanted to. So they built a normal-sized door with no lock on it. But the problem was that this particular brother was more than normal. Extremely overweight. And so they went into him and they said, listen... All you have to do to get out of this prison is to get to a normal weight. And when you do that, you can walk out and be free and clear. And then every day, the king would bring three huge meals and slide them through the door. And as the tale is told, the brother remained there until the day of his death. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything? The Israelites had their way out to freedom. You and I have our way out to freedom in its simple obedience to our Lord. And yet time and time again, we choose the distractions that come in that keep us chained up. I heard somebody this week say that the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, but they brought their chains with them. And I want to tell you, that the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament is that they break their promise over and over and over again. And the more they break them, the more in bondage they become. And I hate to say this, but what I've seen in the lives of people who call themselves followers of Jesus is they leave the land of slavery and they bring their chains with them. Addictions and hang-ups and hold-ups and problems, things that you just can't get rid of. And what we see in the book of Judges is God bringing judgment on the people because of their sin. Why have you done this? I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. What he says is, you didn't do what you're supposed to do, and because of that, it's not going to happen like like you thought it would. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. 
when the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, wept aloud, and they called the place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. The rest of chapter 2, which kind of serves as the introduction to the book, gives us the pattern that begins to happen through the rest of the book and the rest of the Old Testament. Joshua dismissed the Israelites. They go take possession of the land. The people serve the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. You see how important leadership is in the Old Testament. Because as long as Joshua is there, the people who served under him lived for the Lord. And the elders who outlived him had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. These are people that had seen amazing things. Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Verse 10. After the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't told about it. It means that they hadn't experienced it. You know there's a difference between knowing and knowing, right? They knew of the things the Lord had done. They did not know the things the Lord had done. Verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, served Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Asherah. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He'd sold them to their enemies, whoever they were, no longer able to resist. Verse 15 is one of those tragic verses in Scripture. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. You see, one of the sides of the promises God made that we don't talk about often is that God made promises, but he also said, if you break yours, my promise is I will bring retribution and punishment to bring you back to me. And what we see in the Old Testament through Judges, through the rest of, this, of these books, is that God gives blessing to the people. The people respond to blessing with sin. God brings judgment into their lives. When the people get so overwhelmed by the judgment of God, what do they do? They call out to God. God hears their call, delivers them from it, blesses them in the midst of it, begins to give them gifts over and over again, and the people respond by sinning. God brings judgment upon the people because of their sin. And as they enter into that sin and judgment comes, they cry out to the Lord because they're so overwhelmed by the judgment that He's brought. God sends a temporary deliverer who takes them back to an understanding of who He is, and they respond to Him in sin. You get the cycle? Over and over and over again. Now, in the book of Judges, and you might do this this afternoon or um, sometime, you can just flip through those pages, and you'll be able to recognize the temporary deliverance God brings through these people, through Gideon and Deborah, through Samson. These judges who were just people that God raises up and says, okay, you've cried out to me. I promised you that if you cried out, I would send a deliverer. Here's my deliverer. But the promise that is from God happens and the people forsake him. And the cycle begins over and over again. That's easy for us that are believers in the 21st century to 
kind of look at that and think, why didn't they just wise up? Why didn't they just realize what was going on and remain faithful to the Lord? And yet I meet people day after day who are stuck in the same kind of cycle in their own lives. January 1st. God, I promise that this year is a year dedicated to you. This year I'm going to read the Bible through. I'm going to pray like I've never prayed. I'm going to witness to 45 people a day. It's going to be unbelievable, God. January 3rd. God, I know I hadn't done all that, but it's, it's still early. I'm, getting, I'm just getting into it a little bit. And by February, they're gone. About midway through the year, they don't seem to be living with power or confidence or hope. They find themselves in situations they don't know how to handle. They can't figure out how to live this life that they've been called to live, and they feel like their tank is running on empty. And in the midst of that, they cry out to God and say, God, I've got to have you. I've got to be a part. I promise I'm recommitting my life to you. And God, as always he does, fulfills his promise, and the cycle starts all over again. Perhaps it's an addiction. God, starting today, I'm not looking at that stuff on the Internet anymore. Never again. And you make it for ten days. And then the cycle starts all over. God, I'm I'm not going to say those things to my spouse anymore. Ever again. It's done. I don't know about you, but when I was little, I used to make bargains with God. I remember one time in particular, I don't know why I remember this, but I had lost something that was important to my parents for me to maintain and keep. Now that I'm a parent, I find myself saying those things, you better not lose this. And my parents had told me, you better not lose this, and I had lost it. And I remember looking through my closet and saying, God, if you will help me find this, I will never do anything bad again. You know what happened? I found it. It's in the last place I looked. Of course, it always is because you don't look anywhere else, right? And you know what? That afternoon, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. Now, here's the bad thing. I could understand that if I was a seven-year-old child who had yet to come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. But even today sometimes I find myself saying, God, if you would just let me see this or experience that, then my life will be fully committed to you. And you know what? I often find myself in that same cycle that the Israelites were in. And what happens throughout the Old Testament is that God is showing that our sin, our rebellion, is much deeper than we could ever imagine. And temporary, imperfect judges are not going to fix the relationship. You see, the story of the Old Testament really is that promises were made, promises were broken, and that the longing persists. The children of Israel would cry out for a deliverer. Read the Psalms sometimes. And how many times David says, How long, O Lord? Now he's talking sometimes about his personal state. 
How long, O Lord, are you going to let my enemies prosper? But there are Psalms where he says, How long, O Lord, are you going to let this world exist like it does? How long must we wait for you to turn everything right? How long, O Lord, before you step out of heaven and speak a word that will be undeniable about your rule and reign and love and care in this place? How long, O Lord, must we wait? You hear the prophets who really, in some sense, served just like the judges did because the kings always didn't follow the Lord's leading. Prophets crying out to the Israel, repent, repent, repent. And then you see a prophet like Isaiah saying, we're looking forward to one that will come. You have prophecies from Isaiah that were probably fulfilled in his time, but yet also pointed to something greater. Read the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant passages that depicted the crucifixion that would come to God's own Son. And you see the longing in the heart of the people for a day, as Joel describes, when His Spirit would be poured out, when each man and woman would be able to look to Him in the new covenant kind of way described in Jeremiah. The longing persists within their hearts. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something different. This can't be what it's all about. And the truth is, when you get to the New Testament, you realize that the Old Testament, while valid and important and gives us a great understanding of who God is and how His people interact, was really a tutor to get us ready for Christ. I have a little bit of a twisted sense inside of me sometimes. I like those movies that lead you down a path and then effectively at the end change the game in a moment. Movies like The Usual Suspects. Anybody seen The Sixth Sense? Now, some of you may be kind of, it's a little freaky. But you get to the end of the movie, and something changes that makes you reevaluate everything you've already seen. And in your mind, you start flashing back over and over. Oh, so when he did this and did that, and that's why I love a good mystery that weaves its way through, and you get to the end, the conclusion, and who did it, and you go, oh, that's why this happened here. Now, some of you may not care about that kind of stuff. You just watch them and go, oh, okay, that was good. But I go back, and it's almost like when you get to the New Testament, it's that changing moment, and you begin to look back at the Old Testament, and you go, oh, that's why the Passover lamb had to happen. That's why God delivered His people in that way. And what you see in there is that we needed the ultimate gift of a perfect Savior to deal with our complete ineptitude before God. Now let me say this to you. I don't know where you are today, and I don't know what your relationship is with the Lord, but I can guarantee you this. If you're trying to break some kind of cycle in your own strength and your own power, it's not going to happen. It's just not. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you find yourself caught in a familiar sin that you find it harder and harder to break out of, the truth is it's not going to happen in your own power. And the most difficult thing that you will ever do, but the most important thing you'll ever do in breaking free from that cycle is simply to admit you can't do it on your own and you look to the Lord for help. Now, if you're somebody that's not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're looking for that importance and that significance and that something more, let me tell you, you will never find it outside of God's perfect gift of Jesus. 
And so the real question today is what can we learn from the Old Testament Israelites who again and again recommitted themselves to the Lord and again and again failed on those commitments. And it's this. Recommitments are meaningless without the power that comes from the one that never breaks his promise. I would read you a hopeful passage in Judges about what God does, but... (laughs) Finding hope in Judges is difficult at times. I mean, there are those moments that God brings them out, but there's no long-lasting. But in Jeremiah, there is that description of a day that is coming when a new covenant will happen. And the animals that have been slaughtered to pay for the sins will not need to be slaughtered anymore. Because one final sacrifice is coming. I mentioned last week that part of what makes a good story or a good movie or a good book is when the danger is really felt and you feel there's no way out for the hero. There's no way out for a good ending. And part of what I do on a or try to do on a regular basis is to read through the Bible. And I want to tell you, there are times when you're reading the Old Testament It gets depressing to me. I understand God's faithfulness weaved in and out, but there are times when it just seems like it's sin after sin, and king rises, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Read Judges, and it's about all these people that that did whatever was right in their own eyes, and you just see this pattern over and over again. And it gets to the point where there's this extreme weight on you about how in the world can this problem ever be solved. And it is that moment in a good story, and it is that moment in the story when the real hero emerges. You see, the ending of the Old Testament doesn't take us all the way up to where we're going next week in the New Testament, because at the end of the Old Testament, we are on silence for several hundred years. Longer than this country has been a nation, the Lord goes into silent mode with his people. And they are waiting. Waiting and waiting. And in the midst of that moment, it never seemed more hopeless or dark for God's people. Now here's the great thing about God. It is in those moments of complete and utter darkness, if you will turn towards him, that light will pierce through the darkness and hope is found. And next week, as the story continues, we're going to talk about the hope that comes when Prince Charming, the real Prince Charming, 